It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett, coming to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of western Japan. And this is Christmas Eve Eve, so why not? We've busted out some of the old Christmas classics for our bumper music tonight. I hope you appreciate it, and I hope you are getting into the Christmas spirit in whatever way you can in these times that are increasingly, well, unfortunately, dark and quite bleak in some aspects and some respects. Because as we have been documenting here on Corbett Report Radio since its inception, and indeed since the inception of CorbettReport.com back in June 2007, the world is spinning more and more out of control and closer and closer to the precipice of all-out war. As I document in my most recent video for GRTV, Global Research TV, at youtube.com slash globalresearchtv or grtv.ca. So I hope you will check into that recent report that I've just filed about World War III and the descent into chaos that unfortunately we see coming down the line. But uh, tonight I really hope we can at least somewhat change our, our outlook a little bit. It is almost Christmas after all, so we have to have something something hopeful to cling on to, even in these the darkest and longest nights of the year. Well, we need something, some ray of light to hopefully give us something to hope towards. And really, I think there is a lot of positivity that has come out of these dark times, because as with any dark time and the arising of any great enemy, well, we find in those times that we can dig down deep into ourselves to come up with strength, reserve, energy that we never knew that we even had. And it is only in fighting tyrants that we really understand what liberty is. So, unfortunately, it is true that the blood, the tree of liberty has to be watered from time to time with the blood of tyrants and patriots. And that is the quest that we are on, all of us, in our own ways and in our own times. And each generation fights this fight in a different way, but every generation must combat it. And tonight we're going to be looking at a specific political context. Of course, as many listeners out there will know, I am Canadian, and I'm living in Japan right now, and have been for several years now, but I am a Canadian citizen, so I'm still very much concerned with the Canadian political context, and have interviewed numerous people from Canada on my podcast and now on Corbett Report Radio. And as this is Friday night, the Friday night highlights edition of this radio broadcast, I'd like to dip into the archives tonight to go over some of the uh, the interviews that I've conducted over the years, highlighting not just specific aspects of Canada in the New World Order, but specifically how people are fighting against the New World Order, the globalization of government, the taking over of our monetary resources and all of our resources, really, in the name of this encroaching global tyranny, because global tyranny it is. So I certainly hope that the uh, Canadians in the audience will find this uh, information tonight useful, but I think it's also instructive for the Americans and, and indeed everyone else all around the world who I know is listening to my voice right now. It is very important for us to concentrate on what can be done positively to combat these things that we see taking shape around us, and I think there are some examples from the Canadian context that are definitely worth looking into. So we're going to do that tonight by dipping into the archives of CorbettReport.com for some old interviews that I've conducted about Canada and about the people who are fighting against this tyranny in Canada and the successes and 
some of the setbacks that they've encountered. So I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am. We have some very interesting interview segments lined up for tonight. And just on a final note, I would also, at this time, this Christmas uh, season, uh, with the spirit of, of giving in our hearts, I would like to wholeheartedly and truly thank each and every one of you who have signed up to be subscribers, supporters of The Corbett Report, to subscribe to The Corbett Report newsletter at corbettreport.com support. I truly couldn't do it without all of the help that all of you are doing out there. Of course, not just in a monetary sense. When, whenever people are spreading the word about this information, which is really what it's all about, that is truly what warms my heart, and that is what keeps me going, even in these dark times of ours. So once again, thank you to all of the listeners out there who are supporting this independent media and making it all possible. But right now, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about Canada versus the New World Order. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and here on Christmas Eve Eve, we're going through some of the highlights of CorbettReport.com. This is the Friday Night Highlights edition of Corbett Report Radio, so we're going to dip into the archives here to go over some of the interviews that I've conducted in the past regarding specifically Canada and the New World Order and how people have been fighting against the encroaching New World Order system, which is truly a system of global control, but we're going to be looking at some Canadian examples of that tonight, and not just uh, from my home country, but in fact, my home city, we're going to start talking about Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and Alberta sometimes laughingly referred to as Oilberta or Texas of the North because there are quite a few similarities, let's say, between Calgary and a place like Houston or Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, where we're currently broadcasting from an 1140 KHFX. So Calgary is very much the home to a number of oil companies, and it is known for that. But surprisingly enough, interestingly enough, Calgary has had a long and interesting history with fluoridation of the water supply, which is something that I know a lot of the people out there are well-versed in, and how this uh, fluorosilicic acid, which is sometimes called sodium fluoride, that is being put into the water supply, has been used as a tool for the eugenicists, and has been absolutely nothing other than a boondoggle on so many levels, and the science behind fluoride science is just absolutely atrocious when people actually start looking at the real history and the real uh, the real science behind what is going on in the fluoridation of the water. And again, I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are well-versed on that, but if you aren't, I would whole, wholeheartedly suggest you check into the Corbett Report archives. Just type in fluoride into the search bar on the top of CorbettReport.com. There's a search bar there. Just type in the word fluoride, and you will see many, many different uh, interviews and podcast episodes and the like that I've created in the past about this topic and gone into a lot of the science regarding it. And right now, I'd like to highlight a conversation that I had in February of this year with Dr. James Beck, who's a professor emeritus of medical biophysics at the University of Calgary, and he co-authored a book called The Case Against Fluoride. And this is a very hopeful story. Calgary actually decided in a plebiscite uh, several years ago, in fact, in 1991, I believe, to, to start fluoridating the water supply. And amazingly enough, for to, I hope this is a, a, a roadmap for people out there who are in places where there is still fluoridation in their water supply. Amazingly enough, earlier this year, the Calgary City Council voted to stop 
fluoridating the water. So to get more information and background on this process, we're going to listen to this interview that I conducted back in February with Dr. James Beck, talking about the Calgary example and really how Beck got involved with this movement and then how it developed from there. So first, let's pick it up from here. And this conversation was recorded the week before Calgary City Council made their final vote on the taking out of the fluoride from the water supply in Calgary, Canada. Well, about 10 years ago here in Calgary, I was in, asked by a family practitioners to, to join a committee of himself and five dentists who were opposed to fluoridation. Up to that time, I really hadn't thought about fluoridation, uh, despite the, the uh, plebiscites that we had in Calgary. Uh, I, I was just uh, didn't get uh, into it. And when I was asked to do that, I first thought about it, and, and the uh, ethics of the issue just appalled me. And so I, just on that basis alone, I, I thought that it ought not to be done. And so uh, thinking that it ought not to be done, I began to look into the science of the, of the practice, and because of the science is what tells us whether it's effective in preventing cavities and tells us whether it's safe to ingest for humans. So I spent a good bit of time over the last 10 years looking at the scientific literature. And um, it was very late during that period when I uh, was uh, involved in, in sort of commenting on Paul, Comet, uh, Paul Conant's work on the literature he had, had accumulated over 16 years in his case. He probably has the best collection of information on fluoridation in, in the world, he, in which he amassed with the help of his wife, Ellen, and his son, Michael. In any case, uh, Stedding Micklin also was engaged in looking at what Paul was doing, and Paul Conant then invited the two of us to join him in, in uh, writing this book, which is primarily dedicated to looking at the question of efficacy and, and the question of safety. And those are scientific issues. And we also include in the book a brief discussion of the ethics. That's brief because it's such actually it's a very simple aspect and doesn't require much um, much uh, writing or speaking about. Uh, and also there's included in it some history about how we got into this status of having uh, having imposed on such a large population in the world. Uh, a practice that is so patently wrong. That's right. So when you refer to the ethical issue uh, here, you're uh, referring to the idea of force medicating people through the water supply. Yes, yes. Well, uh, it, the, the practice of fluoridation of a public water supply fails the, the requirements of medical ethics in several ways. And one of the ways... Uh, you just mentioned it's forcing a medication on people without their informed consent. Uh, that's a serious violation of medical ethics and alone should be pre should prevent the practice. But in addition, it's using a, a medication that's not approved for for human consumption. 
at least not in the United States and in, in Canada. Well, in Canada, Health Canada has, does approve of it, but, but without basis. In, in the United States, the Federal Drug Administration classifies as it as an unapproved drug. So that's another point on which it fails ethically. It fails also because the person who's receiving it doesn't have the option to stop it. And it also fails because it's administered at a dose that is not controlled. So those are all serious uh, offenses, if you will, on, on ethical grounds. Absolutely, yes. Very serious offenses and uh, ones that are often avoided by proponents of the fluoridation uh, idea. But let's get specifically into the Calgary uh, case. And, and let's talk about when and how Calgary first started adding fluoride to the water supply and uh, what the recent, why the recent debate has uh, started to take place. Well, it, it has a long history in, in Calgary. Uh, there were, before 1989, four plebiscites, which, by the way, uh, is an absurd way to decide how to medicate oneself, uh, where you gather your neighbors together and ask what medicine to take. But at any rate, there were, there were four plebiscites at which, uh, plebiscite, which the public, the voting public, or a small fraction of the voting, voting public, uh, rejected the notice, uh, the uh, practice of, of fluoridation of the public water supply. They rejected it usually, most in most cases, by a fairly negative, uh, fairly narrow margin, you know, say 53% against and so on. But uh, subsequently, there were two other plebiscites. Well, in the meantime, I should say that fluoridation was begun uh, after the 1989 plebiscite, and so that by 1991 we were drinking fluoridated water in Calgary. And the two, another plebiscite was held uh, later in the late 90, 1990s, and in the last two it was approved by this narrow margin uh, of the vote of a minority of qualified voters. So uh, we've had it uh, with us with the sanction of a public vote for some time now. And the, the fact that the, um, that the last two plebiscites express favor, narrow as it was, um, of fluoridation, has made it difficult for the, some councilor, some uh, alderman on the city council to uh, take to stop the program of fluoridation, even though they think it should be stopped because they say the people decided to put it in, then the people have to decide to take it out. Once again, that was Dr. James Beck of the University of Calgary, and I suggest people go and check out that entire interview because it contains more information about the Calgary example. But as I said, that took place before the final vote was cast by the city councillors, and, well, we have this final update from May of 2011. Calgary stops adding fluoride to water. That's right, the Calgary City Council went ahead with the plans, and then ultimately it was removed in May of this year. As of right now, there is no fluoride being added to the Calgary water supply, and that is a big 
big win for the people who have been waging this war to try to get this fluoride, this poison, removed from the water supply for so long. Well, it has worked in Calgary. It can work elsewhere. So I hope people will research more into that story, and perhaps we can even have Dr. Beck on the program in the future to talk more about this extremely important example of how the people can fight back and they can win this fight. Again, I don't want to give the sense that it's all beyond hope. It certainly isn't. We can win things, and it does happen one small victory at a time, but victories nonetheless. So again, I hope the Calgary example serves as a good example of how to get fluoride out of the water supply and stop putting the poison in the water. And again, that's a huge part of the New World Order system generally. At any rate, we're coming up against another break, so let's take a short breather to collect our thoughts, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about the Canadian example fighting against the New World Order. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle Bell. All right, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio, again, dipping into the archives of CorbettReport.com to find examples of Canadians fighting back against the New World Order generally and hopefully giving us some good stories to warm our hearts here on Christmas about people who are fighting back against the system. And on that note, last night, uh, sorry, two nights ago, when we were talking to Dan Dix of PressForTruth.tv, we mentioned an interesting lawsuit that's been filed by Comer, which is the Committee on Monetary and Economic Reform. And they have recently launched a new uh, lawsuit trying to get the Canadian government to really take back the Bank of Canada. It is a public bank. It is not meant to be a private bank. It is not meant to take to create money by uh, borrowing from banks at interest. But that's exactly what it's doing, just like the Federal Reserve is currently operating. The trick being that, in fact, the bank is a national bank and it is owned by the government. They can cr- create their own money absolutely interest-free. They are just not doing that. So a new lawsuit has been filed by Comer, and there's more details on that that have just come out. Uh, There's a video of the press conference of that. I'm going to try to get someone on the program to talk about this more in the future, because I think it's a very interesting and exciting uh, lawsuit. At the very least, it can help to raise awareness about the Bank of Canada, which I think is an important example. Again, even for people in the States who are battling the Fed, I think it's important to see how it works in other countries and how other countries are dealing with what essentially amounts to the same problem, the government borrowing money at interest that it could create absolutely interest-free for itself. So um, so it's a very important topic, and recently on the program, back in October, I was talking to Lawrence McCurry, who we've talked to before on this, uh, on this very broadcast, and also Christopher Porter, who is the current leader of the Canadian Action Party, which was a party that was really established in many ways to fight against the, uh, the banking interests that have usurped the Canadian government and to to really take back the power of the Bank of Canada. And they've been talking about this for a very long time, so I was very interested to hear Chris Porter's uh, ideas about the Bank of Canada and what it really represents. So on our in our October conversation with uh, Christopher Porter and Lawrence McCurry, I did bring up this issue. So let's listen to what Christopher Porter, the leader of the Canadian Action Party, had to say about this very issue. 
You know, William Krim, he's uh, 94 years of age from Comer.org, Committee on Monetary Economic Reform, summarized it the best to me is that uh, no politician has the right to dictate the future of this country without understanding its past. And that's all we're talking about here is going back and reviewing the past. And if I could quote here, the Prime Minister, who um, I still hold a lot of respect for because he actually nationalized our Bank of Canada in 1938. And it was uh, Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, and this is a quote directly from him, Once a nation parts with the control of its currency and credit, it matters not who makes the nation's laws. Usury, once in control, will wreck any nation. Until the control of the issue of currency and credit is restored to government and recognized as its most sacred responsibility, all talk of sovereignty, of parliament, and of uh, democracy is futile. Now, that's some powerful words from 1938, and we need to reflect on that. We need to, to remind ourselves the history of the Bank of Canada, what it got us through, and the decisions since the 70s of the, of the political elite um, changing those rules. And we're not talking about creating a new system. We're talking about reflecting. We still have the power under the Bank of Canada Act. We just don't have the will of the, the elected parliament to actually enforce it. And that's all we're talking about. And that is the a specific goal that we have to educate more people on that so they question it and they ask their MPs about it and they say, is it true? Do we have a national bank? And what powers does the bank do? And why aren't we doing this? And let's start getting any answers. You know, I phoned the Bank of Canada here trying to get the specific date of our nationalization, which is our August 15th, 1938. And actually have the documents of it uh, being passed and everything. But on the phone with the Bank of Canada, the, the, the researcher said, well, I don't think it is nationalized, but don't quote me on that. You know, that's, that's how far we're at. You know, we've we got to do some serious reminding here. All right. Once again, that was Chris Porter of the Canadian Action Party. And obviously, that was just a short clip from that very long ranging, uh, long, wide ranging conversation that I conducted in, in October with uh, Chris Porter and Lawrence McCurry. So I will hope you will follow the link from the show notes on today's episode, CorbettReport.com slash radio to try to uh, find the rest of that uh, that conversation and listen to it because I, I truly think it's interesting. And I will also provide a link to that YouTube video I talked about, the press conference that Comer recently had regarding their new lawsuit to try to, well, get the Canadian government to use the Bank of Canada properly. And I will also provide a link to the Canadian Action Party website itself so you can learn more about that party that I've talked about before on CorbettReport.com. But again, another example of a group that is at least trying to take some action, and it may not be the final step, and we may not suddenly uh, transform the way that Canada creates its money overnight. But again, I think it is a hopeful example of the ways that people are at least trying to raise awareness of what truly is the key issue that underlies so much of the 
the oppression, the tyranny, all of the things that we see going around us is really enabled by the banking system that, just like in the United States, is completely controlled by a small group of private bankers who own private banks that really control the system. And it doesn't have to be that way. It certainly doesn't have to be that way in, in Canada. It certainly doesn't have to be that way in America. So at the very least, we have to concentrate our efforts on getting this, this key issue as part of public awareness, which is why the Ron Paul campaign is so important. But we're coming up against another break, so let's take a short break. We'll be right back after this. You're the wrong one, Mr. Gingrich, if I may personally observe. You have never All right, welcome back to the program, friends, here on Christmas Eve Eve on Corporate Report Radio. We are going through some examples of people fighting back against the New World Order, specifically in Canada, and some of the ways that they are trying to fight back against the tyranny and oppression we see going on in so many walks of life. So from that uh, gorgeous Christmas music to some very somber information, we're going to turn right to an interview that I conducted back in 2009 with Kevin Annette. And his website is hiddenfromhistory.org, so I certainly hope people will follow the link from the show notes of today's episode to his website to learn more about what he calls the Canadian Holocaust. Basically, Kevin Annette is a former minister of the United Church of Canada, and he began finding out about and then speaking out about against the, uh, the, the residential school abuse that was taking place in Canada for decades, really. And he has talked about this as a genocide, a real concerted attempt to really eradicate the, the native peoples of Canada, and absolutely fascinating and really horrifying information in a lot of ways. But he has been right up against that. And uh, in, in 2009, I had the chance to interview him about his work specifically on this topic. I also talked to him in 2010. So uh, you can go to the archives of CorbettReport.com for that conversation as well. But let's listen to this conversation where I start by really talking to uh, Kevin Annette about his experiences and what really started him or what uh, what stands out to him about some of the experiences that he heard that really got him motivated to start exploring this issue of the abuse at the residential schools that were really run in conjunction with the United Church, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and the Canadian government. Well, to give you a real, uh, the best example is the first uh, Native family I ever really met uh, I went out to marry them. They were living uh, right on the grounds of the old Alberni Residential School, which was run by the United Church uh, for over 50 years. And when I was uh, after I performed the wedding, we were sitting there talking, and I asked, his name is Danny Gus, who's a retired Native fisherman, and I asked him why that he and other Natives weren't coming to the church, because I knew that a lot of them had been associated with the United Church. Uh, and he looked at me, and he finally said, well, they killed my best friend in that school, and he's buried in the hills out back. And none of the church people want us around. They know all about it. So, you know, I began to hear those stories, uh, eyewitnesses who, who knew about these killings, who knew about the ch- children suffering so much. You know, and later, years later, when I was, uh, after I'd been fired from the church, and I was working on my, my Ph.D. at uh, the university in Vancouver, I began to uncover these documents which showed that half the children were dying every year uh, in these residential schools. So all of those things were indicating to me that, um, you know, these weren't just stories that people were making up. It was a whole history that had been suppressed. And the, the church that I was working for was, was a key actor in that whole thing. 
It certainly was, uh, according to the documents that you've uncovered, and obviously there were repercussions to the information that you were digging up. How was your questioning received by those around you, both within the church and within the local Native community? Well, you know, the, the people in the church, when I first began to ask questions, they their attitude, this is either church officials, fellow clergy, or the the my fellow um, you know churchgoers, they were all saying the same thing, and that is they're making it up. This, this isn't true. The Native people resent us for having come here, and, and uh, so they're just saying anything they can to, to make us look bad. It was an, a flat denial. Uh, that was years before the lawsuits had begun against the church and the government brought by the survivors of these schools. Uh, so the church felt free to simply deny the whole thing. And I was warned in no uncertain terms that if I kept looking into that, that my job would be at stake. I was issued that kind of warning by several officials in the United Church uh, before I was actually fired. So it's obvious that they were very upset and concerned about this stuff coming out. Um, but, you know, within the Native community, of course, there was no denial. There was a complete, um, you know, awareness of the stuff, and they were very scared about talking about it. Um, and it took a lot of, uh, you know, uh, it, it actually took me getting fired and then beginning to work with more survivors on the ground when they began to open up. I guess after I had lost my job, they trusted me more because I wasn't associated with the church. And they began to tell me more, more of the details at that point. Well, as, as you mentioned earlier, you, you got some of your information from, from the survivors themselves, but also some from your research as when you were a Ph.D. candidate at UBC. Tell us about some of the documentary evidence that you uncovered for the genocide that was taking place. Well, after I got fired, uh, I had been in Port Alberni almost three years, and I was fired, uh, summarily fired without cause or notice. Uh, and after that, and I couldn't get work, the church wasn't allowing me to work anymore, I started a Ph.D. at, at University of B.C., as I mentioned. That same year, in 1996, they had acquired a lot of the records of the residential schools, and I began to go through these things. And it was quite amazing, because they had a lot of first-hand evidence there, letters from Indian agents and even people in the church describing the very large number of deaths, um, records of, of sterilization programs that had been operating in, on the West Coast in the Indiana hospitals here, uh, and even a report from, from uh, Dr. Peter Bryce early in the 20th century, uh, a doctor from Indian Affairs who found that the children were dying en masse in these schools because of the regular practice by the staff of taking healthy children and housing them with children dying of tuberculosis and then never treating them. So in, in effect, they were deliberately spreading these these deadly diseases among the children and then letting them die. And that's what accounted for the huge death rate of over 50%. So all of that evidence began to, you know, began to um, uncover that at the university, but also um, from other sources, people beginning to come forward and uh, and share stuff with me because they had, uh, my firing uh, at the church had made the news. Um, the people were aware of the fact that the church was very much trying to silence me. And it, you know, they began to come forward with that. So it was really a, a process of staying public and continuing to dig for this information. Well, stepping back for a moment, for those listeners who, who might not be aware of this history, tell us a little, a little bit about the Canadian residential school system and how it came into existence. Well, it was really, uh, there had been mission schools among Native people for, uh, well, you know, early into the, uh, as far back as the early 1800s, but in the late 1800s, the, the Canadian governments officially authorized a lot of the mission schools operating among Native people, especially in the West. And um, 
around 1890 these schools began to set up. It was a law in Canada that every native child who was seven years or older had to go to these boarding schools or their parents would go to jail. So, you know, by the early 20th century, there was over 150 of these schools run uh, about two-thirds of them by the Roman Catholic Church, the other uh, schools run by the Anglican and United Church of Canada. And something like a quarter of a million children went through these schools and half or more never came back. Um, those schools continued right up to the 1980s. The last one closed in 1996. And so, you know, a lot of the perpetrators are still alive. Um, and as much as the government and the media here have tried to portray this issue as one of, you know, it's in the past and there's been an apology and compensation, the issue is much, much bigger than that because it involves intentional genocide, an attempt to wipe out, you know, entire nations of people so, under the guise of religious education. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the, the, the history I began to stumble across. And um, I mentioned earlier about the uh, when I was fired in, in uh, early 1995, what was interesting was I had been talking about this from my pulpit and letting people speak, but the issue that actually got me fired was that I found out that the church had been basically selling off the land that had been uh, they had stolen from Native people, selling that off to various logging companies for kickbacks to church officers, and I had written to the church about that and had been summarily fired. Um, and it was only when I continued to talk about that and the residential school deaths that the church then took the step to actually throw me out of the church altogether. So, again, again, it was proven that by this that the church was simply trying to cover up a, a very sordid history. Well, certainly a genocide is, a, is an, probably the strongest charge that could be leveled against any government or, or state actor. What, what do you think is the basis for that charge rather than simply uh, putting this up to neglect or abuse? Well, there was a plan in place, clearly, uh, to kill off uh, Aboriginal people. Um, and, you know, it's not only in the comments that, that politicians have made over the years, but, but um, kind of inherent in the entire Indian Act and in the policy of government and churches in Canada, just like in the United States, there was the understanding that Native people had to either convert to Christianity or they were expendable. Um, and that was demonstrated in a lot of statements which are in my book and in the film on Repentant. But also, um, just the proof in the actual numbers. We know that in a period of about uh, the last three decades of the 1800s in, on the West Coast here in British Columbia, most of the Native communities fell by over 90%. Their population was, they were completely decimated by smallpox and tuberculosis. And we have numerous eyewitnesses who have described uh, the practices of uh, the delivery of smallpox-laden blankets, of you know people who witness children being uh, housed in dormitories where they're all dying of tuberculosis and never treated, and um, the sterilization programs which were quite uh, widespread all over the West Coast, uh, right here in Nanaimo where I live on Vancouver Island, there was a hospital, the Nanaimo Indian Hospital, where eyewitnesses describe you know children and and women especially being regularly sterilized. Uh, and subject to medical experiments in that. So all of that shows, as is defined in the United Nations Convention on Genocide, it all indicates an intent to destroy, you know, a people. And uh, by all the criteria of the, that convention on genocide, Canada and its churches are guilty of genocide. There comes a time in encountering this information in which I think everyone has to step back and just ask the simple question, why? Why did these nightmares take place? And obviously to raise the specter of genocide is to talk about something 
orders of magnitude more than just neglect or abuse. There must be some sort of motivating ideology behind something like this. Well, I think there was two factors. One was simply a desire to get the lands and resources. And like in many places in the world, the way you do that is to drive off destroy and then marginalize the indigenous population, the people who occupy the lands and resources. That was clearly, you know, a, a main motive for all this. But even more basically, in the very ideology of, of, the, of the cultures that conquered here in North America, um, I, there's this uh, Cherokee scholar called Steve Newcomb, and he describes the ideology as uh, some, what he calls Christian superior dominion. And that is the idea that Christians, and the church in particular, uh, are uh, superior uh, to other people in the world and have the right to take their land. This was enunciated in papal laws as far back as the 1400s. There's a very infamous one called uh, Romanus Pontifex, which the Pope passed in 1452, the Intercaterable of, of 1494. These were laws that said non-Christians do not have the right to their own land, and Christian kings have the duty and the right to go in and take those lands from the non-Christian, what who call, they called pa uh, pagans and Saracens. And every European nation passed those kinds of laws, which basically said Christians had the obligation to go in and um, make those people Christian and take their land from them, because they, they don't have the right, uh, they're not even considered people under the law because they're not Christian. So it's a combination of that economic motive of empire and the uh, religious imperialism of Christendom, which combined to cause this massive uh, genocide. As a matter of fact, here in North America, it was the largest mass murder of people in human history, yet a lot of Canadians and Americans still can't get their mind around the fact that it was genocide. Well, certainly, as, as I'm sure you've come across during your research, at the time that the residential school system was being established and as the genocidal institutions started grafting themselves onto the native, the native populations in this tyrannical overlay, the pseudoscience of eugenics was booming in the civilized Western world with the ideas of racial hygiene and social Darwinism and forced sterilization. Can you speak to what such junk sciences and racist ideologies do to the mindset of someone who wants to believe that their total control over others is actually a benefit to society as a whole? Well, I think it's all pervasive, and it's not even something, because it's, it's kind of a water we swim in, and we're taught from day one. We're not even aware we're, uh, we're uh, propagating that ideology. Um, you know, there's a very good book that's been written about this called War Against the Weak uh, by Edwin Black, uh, and it's subtitled America's Plan to Create a Master Race. And it looks about the, at the origin of the eugenics philosophy in the United States in the, in the latter 1800s. And it was basically the idea that, well, the human race, as you mentioned, is divided into various um, races, and the so-called Anglo-Saxon people are, the, uh, are at the apex of that, that uh, pyramid. And uh, we have to protect ourselves against so-called racial defilement. This is the language that the early eugenicists and Adolf Hitler used. Uh, there was a common language on both sides of the Atlantic. And the idea was, well, we have to perfect ourselves by not only getting rid of so-called inferior uh, races, but those within our own race who are, quote, defective, like mentally defective people, uh, people morally unfit, like unwed mothers, political dissidents, people like that, all of those people should be stopped from breeding. And that was the, the ideology behind the, the eugenics movement. It, it uh, manifested in a lot of laws in the United States and Canada, um, which uh, allowed any group targeted to be involuntarily sterilized. There was over uh, 40 states in America passed sterilization laws aimed uh, primarily at the what they call the feeble-minded, 
uh, people with a lower IQ. But it was broadened in Canada. The sterilization laws were broadened to include uh, Native people, uh, other racial groups. Um, you know, as I mentioned, um, people deemed morally or politically undesirable. And um, it was widely used against Native people. And to give an example, uh, over uh, one-third of all Native people in Alberta who were, uh, I'm sorry, over one-third of the people sterilized in Alberta hospitals were Aboriginal, even though they were only 2% of the population. In on British Columbia, there were three hospitals set up here by the United Church and the federal government and the Catholics to uh, target Native people who were traditionalists, that is, who were still living on their land, who refused to become Christian, and who were chiefs, the, you know, the traditional uh, leadership of the indigenous communities. They were all targeted for sterilizations, and these sterilizations continue today um, through vaccination programs and other uh, other ways of, you know, under the guise of public health, definitely the, these chiefs' families are still being targeted. So, it, you know, in other words, it's an ideology that doesn't stop. It just changes its rhetoric, but the aim is really the same. Once again, that is Kevin Annette of HiddenFromHistory.org, and I would once again urge people to go to that website and start looking through the voluminous material that is linked there regarding this very sobering story of the real atrocities that went on in the residential school system in Canada for decades and that has been thoroughly and completely covered up. And when you really start going into the history of how Kevin Annette was personally excoriated for his work in trying to bring this to the attention of the church and to the uh, public in general, it's uh, quite harrowing to really think about what what he had to go through just personally in order to try to bring this information to a wider audience. So once again, I hope people will take a look at some of his work and, and really start to explore more about Canada's uh, genocide. And there is a very uh, good documentary that was produced on the subject in 2006 called Unrepentant, Kevin Annette and Canada's Genocide. So I'll try to dig up the link to that so that you can go and watch that very important documentary. And again, find out more about this. But once again, it is the example of people like that that I think is truly something that we have to to look at. People who are willing to put everything on the line and risk their careers and their reputations and everything they have in order to start exposing some of these atrocities and and really calling out the people who have been doing them for so long and trying to bring justice to them. Kevin Annette is still uh, uh, active in this quest and he's uh, involved in numerous different groups that are trying to raise awareness and trying to get justice for these victims. So once again, I hope people will look into that and look at it as a possible example of ways that we can proceed in so many different aspects. Once again, we are running up against a break here on Corporate Report Radio, so we'll return after these messages. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the closing minutes of Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you on this night before Christmas Eve. So I certainly hope that you are all safe, you are all sound, you are all warm, and you are all prepared for Christmas. So I hope you have your last-minute Christmas shopping done, as I am, well, pretty much done, I hope. But uh, I'm always running a bit late with that. But wherever you are tonight and whatever you're doing, I hope you are staying safe and warm and that you do have a nice place to spend Christmas, hopefully with your family and hopefully in a happy environment where 
I guess we don't have to take our minds off of these very important issues, but we can at least concentrate on some of the good things in life and some of the things that we truly live for, the things that we're fighting for. Because unfortunately, in the alternative media world, we sometimes get caught up in looking at the negative and looking at the, the sky that is always falling. And it really is, unfortunately, always falling because the people who want tyranny are always trying to consolidate their control. But we can get caught up on that and fixate on it. And just like staring at a pothole that's right there in front of you in the road, well, you're going to drive into that pothole. So if you don't look at it, you can steer around it. And if you look at where you want to go, you can steer your car in that direction. And that's ultimately the metaphor that I hope portrays what we're trying to do here on Corbett Report Radio. We have to be aware of the potholes in the road, but we have to steer towards where we want to go. So whether that's on the fluoride issue, like Dr. James Beck was talking about earlier in this uh, broadcast, or whether that's on the economic issue, like Chris Porter and the Canadian Action Party have been doing yeoman's work exposing in the Canadian context, or whether it's talking about such grisly things as the Canadian genocide, as Kevin Annette has been talking about for years now. In all of those cases, we have to concentrate on what we want to see, whether it be economic justice or justice for the victims of the genocide or even just the removing of the fluoride from the tap water, which should be a lot easier than it is. And at any rate, it has been done successfully. So hopefully that's a template for others to follow. And again, I don't want to bring everyone down here on Christmas Eve Eve. I certainly hope that you have an excellent Christmas and a great New Year. I will not be coming back next week. I will be taking the week off, so we'll be listening to some rebroadcasts during this time slot next week. And I hope you will catch up. If you haven't heard those broadcasts before, we'll be going over the first few episodes of Corbett Report Radio. But I will be back in the new year with new guests and new topics and exploring even further into this New World Order system and hopefully equipping you with the knowledge that you need in order to at least effectively fight back against it, if not conquer it completely. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing in 2012, so I hope you'll stay tuned for that. And once again, let me thank each and every one of you out there that has been doing uh, just uh, such incredible work spreading this information. And, of course, to all of you who have supported my work, thank you so much. I truly couldn't do it without you out there. So, once again, if you haven't signed up to be a subscriber to the e-newsletter, please do that. Or if you haven't bought one of my DVDs, please consider doing that. It truly does support my work, and it gives you something that you can use to, to give to others. I encourage people to burn copies and give them out for free. What a great Christmas present or a present any day of the year. So once again, thank you to all of you out there for tuning in and really trying to, to help this independent media grow because that is the ticket. That's the way out of the, all of this mess, I think. At any rate, until the new year, have an excellent Christmas. Have a very happy new year, and I will see you in 2012. Until then, stay safe, stay warm, and take care. We watch the children.